and welcome to episode 1100 Untold 85 of Effectively Wild, the Fangraphs baseball podcast, brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs, joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, who has informed me today that there has existed an episode 1184 of this podcast, and it was released in 2015. Please explain. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. For anyone wondering why the feed just seemed to suddenly skip 1184, it's because there already is one. Sam and I did an episode from the future in 2015, which was a weird thing that Baseball Prospectus did. There was one day in July of 2015 when all of their articles and podcasts Podcasts were produced and written and recorded as if they were from the future. So Sam and I did an episode 1184 in between episodes 702 and 703, and I figured rather than have two 1184s, we would just skip it now. So there is an 1184. I will link to it if anyone wants to go back and hear what we thought the future was going to be like. Sam, I believe, thought that I would be expecting my first child. Not the case as far as I know, and I think we spoke as if the Marlins had just won the World Series, which was sort of a joke, I believe. We also said the Cubs were in first place, which was maybe farther fetched at the time than it seems now anyway that is the explanation so don't go looking for a new 1184 there is only an old 1184 you suckers wasted your time writing because the future is actually just a union strike and there's nothing to write about (laughs) at all so (laughs) this is this is a team preview episode we are going to be talking with grant mccauley about the up-and-coming Braves, and we're going to be talking to To Be Determined about the Cardinals. <laughs> we were going to talk with Derek Gold about the of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch about the Cardinals, and then there was breaking news. So yeah. we'll, uh, we're going to find out. Well, we talked to Derek for a, a solid three minutes <laughs> or so about the Cardinals' closer situation. Fascinating stuff. And then he was <laughs> called away by breaking news that he had to cover. So we may or may not be talking to Derek again or finding a guest to sub in. But by the end of this intro, hopefully we will know what one way or another and until then we will vamp and uh yeah before we get to the team previews we have some stuff to banter about i've got something you've got something i don't know if there's a third thing but justin verlander posted an interesting tweet <laughs> on thursday so why uh, you know you just talked to rob arthur about the ball yep. and about what he's found and about what you found so why don't you go ahead and introduce the justin verlander tweet yeah how about that so rob and i talked on this week's bonus episode about his latest study that looked inside the baseball and found that its core seems to have changed around the time when home runs seemed to have skyrocketed back in 2015 or so and justin verlander has been pretty vocal about the baseball going back a couple of years now and even last year when and my Ringer article with Mitchell Lickman came out, Verlander tweeted a link to it and was saying some things to reporters about how he thinks the ball is different. I tried to get Verlander on a podcast at that time, and he declined, but he has still been pretty vocal about it. And so he was tweeting about it again yesterday when Rob's article came out. And so first he tweeted something just kind of uh, philosophical about the baseball difference. So he said, all I'm saying is I don't care if balls are juiced. Seriously, we're all using the same ball, so it's a fair field. My issue is I don't like being lied to. I knew something was different. Century-old records are being broken and numbers are skewed. So does sort of sound like he cares, but obviously he's been a very good pitcher, even with whatever the baseball has been, so it's not really holding him back any. But the really fascinating thing was that he just jumps off the top rope with a tweet that brings some new data to this discussion. So he says, been sitting on this. 
exit velo and launch angle and its correlation to the percentage chance of becoming a homer 2014 versus 2017 and he tweeted a nice graph that appears to have been produced in the program r and it shows this uh, graph from 2014 next to a graph from 2017 of the vertical angle of batted balls next to the exit speed on the x-axis and They are slightly different. And then there's a third image that essentially just isolates the difference between the 2014 and 2017 images and shows that in 2017, with the same exit speed and launch angle as in 2014, the chances of a ball becoming a home run are higher. This essentially backs up, validates research that's been done before and some of the work that Rob published at 538 last year showing that the ball is just carrying better even if it's hit in exactly the same way. It just goes farther. And Justin Verlander, of all people, just uh, backing this up with some data we didn't have because we don't have 2014 public ball tracking data, at least batted ball tracking data. So I gather that this is something that the Astros R&D department made for Justin Verlander last October, and actually in a Tom Verducci article in SI from October 30th, he references Verlander showing him a printout of this image, like just a a laminated thing that was at his locker, but uh, Verlander, I guess, just was unable to resist the temptation to finally put this thing out in the world, and no, I don't think he was programming this in R himself. He had some help, but uh, (laughs) interesting that the Astros gave him this, and obviously this is based, I believe, on TrackMan data from 2014, which we don't have in the public sphere. So this is pretty interesting stuff. That's what I was going to ask, because there is no public StatCast for 2014. But I, I guess that there was private StatCast because, you know, the alternative is that this was based on hit effects, which ballparks did have. And my right. understanding is that hit effects recorded exit velocities a little differently than TrackMan. Did, yes. So that could be yeah. a factor. But I would assume if the Astros put this together, they probably corrected for any sort of variables. Yeah, well, HitFX, I think, overlapped with TrackMan, at least in some parks, for a few years, so you could figure out what the difference was and then make that adjustment. But I believe the Astros just had TrackMan set up in Minute Maid already in 2014, and TrackMan is the basis of the StatCast batted ball tracking. So it's, Mm -hmm. I think, the same data source in both of these years, and it's just a year that we didn't have. So interesting in a number of reasons. One, because we just didn't have this data, so this shows and seems to confirm that something is probably different about the ball. And also interesting that we know that Justin Verlander is making stat requests to the Houston Astros nerd cave, their R&D department, and that they were able to determine this and give this to him. And I don't know if they're happy that he tweeted it out for everyone to see, but I'm happy. So wasn't expecting this to come from a major league pitcher, but pretty cool that it's out there. I guess it is worth pointing out that to compare 2014 and 2017, it's somewhat arbitrary. 2014, of course, is the last, you could say, clean year before any ball alterations, right. but 2014 also a uh, offense was greatly suppressed to that season. It was at a its lowest level in, I don't know, decades, mm-hmm. whatever it was. And if you just look at home runs per fly ball, then in 2012, the league average was 11.3%, followed by 10.5%, followed by 9.5%, then 11.4, 12.8, then 13.7. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you have uh, written about this and researched this far more than I have. So what we've seen based on Rob Arthur's study and based on your studies is that we've got a a less dense core, mm-hmm. right, by some 
like a, a half gram, I think was the, the weight difference that Rob found. It's a, a less dense core, lower seams, and was there a third thing? Yeah, well, I think the, the ball is bouncier, probably, which bouncier, may yes. have something to do with the core, and then it, it may also be a bit smaller and, and lighter, too. So I think it's uh, it's just a confluence of factors, a, a number of small changes that, when added together, produces this larger effect. But in theory, I mean, if this graph is showing what it seems to be showing— this is just holding everything constant, right? The angle at which the ball is hit and the speed at which the ball is hit. So I think we we know that the ball was just hit harder going from 2014 to 2015 or 16, which might be because of the ball in part, might be because of other things. But in this graph, at least, it's just comparing like to like and balls that are hit at the same speed seem to be going out more often in recent seasons than they used to, which suggests that the ball is just carrying better, even holding all the other factors constant. So walk me through this again. Talk to me like I'm stupid, but like I know some baseball (laughs) fundamentals. We have, I think, pretty convincing evidence. There was a change in the ball in 2015, uh, right in the middle. This is we've known about this for years. But so then, how do you explain the rising home run rates since then? So Rob's estimate that he said on the podcast yesterday and wrote in his 5:38 article, he calculates that home runs are up about 46 percent over the past few years, and he thinks that the changes to the ball would have produced an increase of 25 percent in the home run rate. So he thinks that more than half of the increase in home runs that we've seen is related to the ball, which then still leaves a sizable chunk that is not related to the ball. And I think the best theory there is probably that it's swing changes, that it's a difference in strategy. It's hitters who are seeing that the ball is carrying better and thus are tailoring their swings and their approaches at the plate to try to take advantage of a ball that's flying better by putting it in the air more often. So I think it's a combination of the changes in approach by the hitters and the ball. And I don't know if the hitters would have made those changes in approach if the ball hadn't changed. Maybe it made some sense anyway, because we did see guys like Josh Donaldson and Justin Turner making these sort of swing changes before the real home run rate took off. So maybe there was just an advantage to hitting the ball in the air more often anyway. But the fact that the ball seems to be carrying better, I think, has made the rewards of pursuing that strategy much greater. So I think it's those two combined. But Rob estimates that it's probably mostly the ball. So if you look at the uh, Ed Verliner's tweet and the image, we could just call it the Astros image, but in any case, the, you can see that the the largest increase in fly ball probability, it's it's somewhere around like 25 or 30 degrees of launch angle with an exit velocity uh-huh. that is a little over 100 miles per hour. That's where you see the uh, the <laughs> yeah. darkest red. This is a really hard thing to try to explain yes, on the podcast. Just yeah. look at it. It's everywhere. Go on Twitter. Go. It's probably been linked, not on Twitter. But so if you, I just ran a little query on Baseball Savant looking at all batted balls hit between 20 and 35 degrees above the horizontal. Mm-hmm. And I just searched everybody by their average exit velocity within that range. So pretty unsurprisingly, the top five are Joey Gallo, Aaron Judge, Giancarlo Stan, and Chris Davis, the 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 A's, Chris Davis, and Paul Goldschmidt. Those are all very hard hitters. And those are guys yeah. who could hit the uh, hit home runs under any circumstances. That much we know. Now, if you start going down, the guy in the 100th place is Kurt Suzuki. 101st place, Francisco Lindor. Now, if you keep going, the guy in 200th place is Andrew Benintendi, followed by Ozzy Albies. And if you 
Keep going. Guy in 300th place, D.D. Gregorius, followed by Caleb Joseph. Yeah. D.D. Gregorius just hit a whole bunch of home runs. I don't know if anyone noticed, but what this has effectively done, and this is pretty intuitive, I guess, but yes. this just lowers what is needed in order to hit a home run. And this is, I think, why we're seeing seemingly so many players who are aiming up, trying to alter the swings, just trying to hit for power. It's because more players are capable of hitting for power now than ever before. This is something we've written about for a few years, but... You know, Didi Gregorius can try to hit home runs. When he, yep. when Gregorius first came up, he was a no-power glove guy. We all remember that. That's why he was such a funny replacement for Derek Jeter when the Yankees traded for him. You think, <laughs> well, at least they're going to have a reliable defensive shortstop. Mm-hmm. Well, they have one, but he also hits for power. I hesitate to right. say that it's not because Gregorius has gotten better, because I believe he has, but he's gotten better in a way that just wasn't accessible to him when he was a rookie. And so you can see why this is so confusing for teams to try to evaluate players now, because now now, I mean, Cattell Marte is down here. I'm looking at this exit velocity list. Aledmus Diaz, even Alcides Escobar. Maybe there's maybe there are <laughs> limits here to who can actually hit home runs. But, you know, it just it opens the door to so many more players. And so I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, but a conclusion here could be that the ball changed and became livelier. Home runs became more accessible in the second half of 2015. Since then, players have noticed and more and more and of them have decided, hey, I can hit home runs too. And so therefore, the players have responded to the change, making the effective impact of the ball all the more greater. Because even if the ball is only responsible for maybe half of the home run increase, you could argue, maybe responsible for the entire increase. Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. And yeah, I don't know whether you would say that someone is better or not. I guess you would say maybe someone who just kind of takes advantage of the ball being different and profits from it is not necessarily more skilled but is more valuable because he's in this context where his skills play up and I mean that's sort of the same thing you might say about a hitter who moves from one park to another and maybe his swing is better suited for the second park and so he's sort of the same player but he's more valuable in a different environment and I think that's why we've seen record-breaking home run totals by team and by league, but not by individual player. No one is you know, breaking 60 homers, although obviously Stanton came close, but no one's setting really new individual home run records unless you start talking about like rookie home run records or that sort of thing. But no one's challenging Sosa, McGuire, Bonds here. And I think that's because we're seeing this more democratic or egalitarian distribution of home runs because the top guys are not necessarily hitting that many more home runs because they were clearing the fences anyway. At least I think when you're looking at someone like Judge or Stanton, you know, as long as they're healthy, they're always going to be hitting the ball hard and clearing the fence by a lot every time. Whereas if you have someone who previously had warning track power, Now that same guy has second row of the stands power. And so his home runs are going to increase by more than another player's home runs are going to increase by. And and you actually showed that last year, maybe or 2016 even, I think you bucketed players into like high power, medium power, low power or something like that. And you showed that the lower power guys had gained more in the previous year or so and i think that's why yeah something like that and i haven't come up with a way to effectively measure it but the the theory that underpins a lot of this is that who has the same chance of hitting a fly ball 200 feet as 300 feet i i think that you have fly balls that are often hit within i don't know 30 feet of a guy's maximum maybe within 50 feet mm-hmm. and that it tails off from there so that 
I think maybe I'm not explaining this very well, but I think that there is such a thing as warning track power. But if you have a guy like Aaron Judge or John Carlos Stan, I don't think these guys are hitting balls to the track. I think they're hitting home runs or they're hitting just, you know, routine flyouts. Whereas if you have someone like, you know, Didi Gregorius or I don't know, who's another Eugenio Suarez, Zach Cozart. These are guys who were maybe topping out at the warning track with some wall scrapers. And then you just shift their fly balls who knows, 10 feet, 20 feet more away from home plate, and then those start going over. But uh, I guess I haven't seen it proved that fly balls are not evenly distributed, but, you know, it Mm -hmm. it makes some intuitive sense. Mm -hmm. All right. What did you want to talk about? So uh, there is an article that went up on The Athletic on Thursday, and it's uh, an article that would have been somewhat easy for Pedro Moore to write because it's not so much an article as it is an interview. He did an interview with Angels outfielder Justin Upton. I don't know how many of you have read this. I only got around to reading it on Friday, but it's an interesting. It's a it's a candid interview. Upton is in here talking about the his own free agency experience, and he's talking about launch angles and how... Uh, He's never changed his launch angle, and he doesn't begrudge the players, of course, who were trying to hit. There's a, a fun little anecdote in here about how uh, in 2015, Cliff Pennington was trying to increase his launch angle to try to hit for some more power. And he was working out on the side because he was not expecting to play. But the mistake he made was not expecting to play while on a roster with Troy Tulowitzki because <laughs> Tulowitzki got hurt. And Pennington was thrust into action before he was ready to use his new swing, and he was terrible. So that's a fun little story, but... I think what stuck out the most in here was Upton talking about his own experience with free agency. He said that in 2015, when he was a free agent in one week, like eight teams all called offering a one-year deal, which was strange. Upton wound up signing a six-year deal, I think it was, with the Tigers. But he also talked about free agents no longer being courted. And of course, Upton has his own experience. He's only talked to so many players, but here's a section here. So he's responding to a question from Mora and he said, when I was a free agent, I was told by multiple teams, oh, you don't play good defense. I was told how bad of a defender I was and how they weren't going to pay me. Well, don't call. So Upton talks about, and this is all anecdotal, but the idea that even the good free agents aren't courted so much anymore, teams aren't focusing and telling these players what they can do, but instead they're telling them, hey, here's why we think you're a liability, therefore you should sign for our price. Uh Now, we know from other cases, this isn't totally true because there were articles written about how effectively, how thoroughly the Cubs courted you, Darvish. Obviously, there were articles everywhere written about every single team's process to try to court Shohei Otani. So there are still free agent courtships, I guess, for the most valuable players. But it is interesting if this is true, if there's truth to the fact that maybe uh, players aren't being treated the way they used to be, that in a sense, free agency is kind of turning into arbitration, where it's just, Mm. you're going to end up getting paid, but not before someone is kind of mean to you about your actual skills. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, on the whole, I don't know if players are treated in any way worse than they used to be. I think they used to be treated much worse in in many ways than they are today. But in free agencies specifically, I, I know that You know, R.J. Anderson has written about and other people have written about the information gap between teams and agents and by extension players. And it used to be possible maybe for an agent to make a case to a team. This is why you should sign this guy. Here's how good he is. And everyone makes fun of the Scott Boris binders, which I think have always been more to either sell ownership, which may not be as statistically savvy, or just to impress the player, impress the client, and say, look how much work I'm doing for you. 
I don't think that has ever really changed minds in the baseball operations department, but there did used to be more parity between agents and teams, and now agents don't have access to the full raw StatCast feed, for instance, whereas teams do. And even if agents did, maybe they wouldn't have the infrastructure to take advantage of that. I think maybe in part they've just been slow to, say, hire statistical analysts who could help their players improve. So that might be part of it in that just teams know a lot more than agents do and than players tend to now. So it's hard to tell a team something they don't know about a player or at least something positive. And so teams might just feel like, well, we we know more than you do. And uh, maybe that leads to a more dismissive tone. Yeah. And there's more in here too. I'll read a few more quotes from Upton, uh, such as, for example, Teams don't value players as people anymore. They value them as a number on a sheet of paper. Basically, they have a stat sheet and it says, this is that guy. He's a robot. He's not a person. He's just a player. They don't value him as a person anymore. Next quote, kind of the same. Put it this way. You're not a person anymore. You're just a player. There's no piece of paper with, do you love me? Yes or no? Written on it being slid your way. It's (laughs) like, I'm going to prom if you're going. Or finally, to answer the following question, a lot of teams are going to sabermetrics and you're becoming no longer a person, but player A or player B. Player is almost overstating it. That's how players should feel about this. When you carry yourself in the clubhouse, just know that the people upstairs see you as a statistic. You're a stat sheet, and you can possibly produce this. Now, it's kind of hard to argue. <laughs> he's he's probably right, because uh, this is how front offices work. Of course, they're not all cold and calculating. Every front office is composed of people, and people are aware that other people are people. But, you know, it's not untrue. Certainly from the outside, when we're writing this sort of analysis, we have little choice but to think of these players as their numbers. That's all we can really research. And Mm -hmm. you can see it's not ideal, I guess, from the player perspective. You want to be more valued as a human being. But is there any major business in America that doesn't just value its employees as numbers? Right. I mean, I guess just the easier to quantify an employee's output or production it is, the more tempting it is to think of them in terms of that output. If you're in a field where everyone just sort of has to go by feel for whatever reason, then maybe it's more difficult to reduce someone's performance to a stat. But this is the sort of thing you used to hear a few years ago about the Astros, right? And Bud Norris, I guess, someone we might shortly be talking about, used to complain about that. And you used to hear various anonymous sources talking about the Astros and how they treated every player as a number. And, well, they won the World Series. So if they were treating every player like a number, I guess it worked. But I don't know. I mean, I think it's somewhat overblown. I think teams still very much value the personality and the psychology. And I mean, I was just listening to an interview with Kevin Goldstein recently on the Infinite Inning, and he was talking at length about how much the Astros value those qualities. And I think teams generally still do. I mean, maybe they value them less than they used to just because they didn't used to have numbers that were as solid and as telling as the ones we have today. So maybe a greater proportion of your evaluation of a player is based on their stats than it used to be. But uh, that's not to say that teams are not still 
valuing someone who's really good in the clubhouse or taking into account how coachable someone is or you know if you want to teach him a new pitch or a new swing or something obviously you have to treat each person like an individual who may or may not want to do that more so than just assuming everyone can do it and that it works the same way for everyone so I can see why the free agency process would make a player feel that way but I don't know that that's really the reality I think it's it's probably more true than it used to be this is sort of old sabermetric theory so whatever this is nothing new but if you think about it especially from say Kevin Goldstein's perspective if you are a scout and you're responsible for bringing people into the lower levels of the organization I completely understand putting a a, a great amount of emphasis on somebody's personality whether this player is motivated, whether maybe this player doesn't really have that much of a work ethic. But when you get into the major league level, and certainly when you get to players who have made it all the way to free agency, sort of established multi-year players in the bigs, you kind of have to assume that to a great extent, baseball has been selective for the positive traits. Every player who's already made it has made it because that player has been driven enough to make it to the upper levels playing against the odds. And so you can sort of safely assume that no one with rare exception at the major league level is going to be completely toxic or no one is going to stop caring. And if there are cases of players who say, I don't know, what's a popular critique? Someone stops caring after they sign their first giant contract. Well, you can't Mm -hmm. really know that because when a player's in the minors, he doesn't have that giant contract. So I don't, I don't even know if there's a good case of that happening to begin with, but even if there is, I don't know how you're supposed to scout for that. So maybe, yeah, Maybe it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I mean, I think teams, you know, if they're going to trade for a guy, I think they'll still, if anyone on their team has played with that guy before, they might ask for an opinion on what he's like or, you know, scouts will try to find out what he's like or they'll reach out to other front offices. Like, you know, you don't want to acquire someone who's toxic in some way. But yeah, I think when you're talking about established long-term big leaguers, there aren't that many guys like that because they just wouldn't be there if they were like that. So I think there's still some guys you look at every year and maybe they're around replacement level, but they keep getting jobs. And maybe it's because there's some belief that they improve the clubhouse atmosphere or they help mentor people or make other players better. But, you know, that's the minority. Certainly you're going to be looking at the stats and the skills first. All right. Well, we have stalled long enough to get to our Cardinals preview. Our guest will not be Derek Gould, who is still indisposed. Instead, we will have the pleasure of talking to Craig Edwards, who until very recently was the managing editor of Viva Albertos, the Cardinals SB Nation blog, and now is not because Fangraphs hired him full time. Craig is now not writing as much about the Cardinals, but he is doing more work for Fangraphs, including previewing the Cardinals with us. So we'll be back in just a moment to talk to Craig. I guess I'll have to change my plan. I should have realized there'd be another man. I overlooked that point completely until the big affair began. Before I knew where I was at, I found myself upon the shelf and that was that. And so to talk about these St. Louis Cardinals, we have Craig Edwards, my co-worker, long-time co-worker, I suppose, but now formerly more of a co-worker. I don't know how it works, but in any case, these St. Louis Cardinals are coming off consecutive seasons of not making the playoffs. First time that's happened since 2007, 2008, 
poor them. And of course, there is a conversation right now, and that's been taking place for a while, of have the Cardinals done enough? The Cardinals have been linked to players like Josh Donaldson and Manny Machado. Now the Cardinals did trade for Marcelo Zuna, who is very good. But Craig Edwards, would you say that the Cardinals have, quote, done enough, end quote? I would have to say no, they haven't done enough. They're in, a, they're in a difficult position where they've done roughly exactly what they've always done. But unfortunately for them, uh, they are in the same division as the Cubs, who have done a lot more over the last few seasons. And, you know, the Cardinals are, you know, in their 85 to, you know, maybe 90 win area. But uh, when the Cubs are at, you know, 90 to 95, if you want to close that gap, you have to do a little bit more than what you've done in the past in the Cardinals. Although adding Marcelo Zuna haven't really done that, especially given the fact that the Cubs made somewhat equivalent acquisition uh, in in U Darvish, especially when you consider where the Cubs rotation would have been. Without U Darvish, I think that the Cardinals still need one more sort of uh, maybe star type player, whether it's Josh Donaldson, Manny Machado, Chris Archer. I think uh, they, they need one of those type of guys to sort of put them back in the conversation where they're maybe closer to equal footing. Uh, with the Cubs, but I would say no, they haven't done enough. Uh, but at the same time, they're still in the same spot that they've always been in, you know, playoff contention. Yeah. So the Cardinals, let's see, organizational ranking according to Baseball America right now, number 13, which is the same range that they've been for really the previous three seasons, too. It's been a while since the Cardinals were at the top. I guess 2013, they had the top overall farm system according to Baseball America. So maybe partially, the lack of high draft picks has finally taken its toll. I guess we're not actually talking to Derek, but I will still cite some research he did in his Baseball Prospectus annual essay. He looked at the average draft position for first-round picks of every organization since 2000, and he found that the Cardinals' first pick on average from 2000 to 2017 was number 306 and that even if you just limit it to teams having their first pick in the first 30 picks, because there are years, obviously, where you drop out of that, but even if you just limit it to those years, their average has been 22.1, and only the Yankees have had worst first draft picks in that span. So for a long time, it seemed like the Cardinals sort of had the secret to the draft and were finding tons of talent that other teams were letting slip by, but this is a long time to go without having those top picks that often bring back the more secure talent so maybe they've just sort of run out of the ability to keep finding those gems in the lower rounds yeah i think that that's that's fair if you look at you know some of the guys that you would expect to be in in the majors right now who are first round picks you know you know five years ago or whatever colton wong is a very good outcome for a pick in the you know mid-20s same with michael waka very good outcome, but those aren't star players. You know, the the, the best player on their pitching staff is uh, signing from the Dominican Republic and Carlos Martinez. I think that they've had difficulty developing that type of star player. And, you know, obviously, you know, the, the tragic passing of, of Oscar Tavares, you know, yes. hurts that some respect where he was he was the guy that was supposed to supposed to sort of, you know, take over in terms of potentially being a star. And instead, what they have is a lot of guys who are, you know, in that two to three win range, which is is good to have. And they've got a lot of those guys, but they've got very few who have the potential to sort of be the, the five or six win guys. They sort of 
I don't know if you want to call it luck into one last year with, with Tommy Pham, but, uh, you know, his his production, I think, is surprising given where he's been uh, the, the last few years. You know, he was a guy that, you know, if if he had come up when he was 24, 25 and, you know, hadn't had those injury problems, you know, you might see him as as a star right now. But uh, that's not the way his career went. So they had to trade for, you know, Marcelo Zuna as a guy who's, you know, has that sort of potential. But that was a, a backup to Giancarlo Stanton. And mm-hmm. I, I think they tried to make Jason Hayward that guy. And, you know, his career is, is an interesting turn. But they, they haven't quite been able to to develop that that star player. And, and I think when you look at, you know, the Cubs and they get a huge head start with Bryant and Rizzo and the, the Cardinals maybe match up with the Cubs pretty well the, the rest of the way after those two guys. But without those two top guys, you're, you're falling behind pretty quickly. Yeah. And, you know, looking at their roster breakdown on roster resource, they still, even now, have the highest percentage of homegrown players on their 40-man roster. So 60% of their 40-man is homegrown. However, roster resource defines homegrown. So I guess that's 24 of their 40-man players. And then also the highest percentage looks like 13 of their 25-man guys are homegrown. So obviously they're still built that way and they're still trying to build that way so who are some of the guys who were maybe on the 40 man or on the cusp who could contribute this year or you know the next generation of guys like carpenter or carlos martinez or guys who debut with the cardinals who could contribute as soon as 2018 well i I think alex reyes was probably still that guy i mean uh, a lot of people had him as you know that the best uh, prospect in, in baseball in terms of pitching heading into last year before he missed the season with, with Tommy John surgery. I mean, he's, he's still, you know, assuming he still throws a hundred miles an hour. I mean, he still has that potential to come up and, and be an ace on, on the position player side. It's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit more difficult. You know, you, you talk about, you know, not having the, the, the top pick in the, in the draft and they, they took a risk on a guy, Delvin Prez, not too long ago who fell just because he had a, a positive PED test before the draft and he was viewed as a top five talent and you know he's still only like 18 19 years old and you know he's he's his stock has dropped a lot in the in the past year so I mean he's still a ways away um you know you look at guys like Tyler O'Neill who has a lot of power but hasn't quite put together a really good full season in in the minor leagues but the ceilings on on a lot of these guys are are, are somewhat limited to Still that, you know, two to three win uh, type player. They're pretty thin in the middle infield throughout the minors. So I think you're still looking at at pitching as the place where you're sort of expecting the the Cardinals to to sort of develop where maybe other teams aren't aren't doing quite as good of a job. And so you have Alex Ruiz, you have Luke Weaver, who's going to, you know, presumably have a, a spot this year. Jack Flaherty is a guy who could... Uh, you know, have a spot at some point this season in the rotation. And, and beyond him, you've got guys like uh, Jordan Hicks, who, you know, he throws 100 miles an hour and he's got a lot of development left. But he's a guy who could come up at, at some point as, as well. I, I think that the strength is still the pitching, and that's where it's been for, for a while now. So Sun Juan O is gone. Trevor Rosenthal is gone. We had a brief false start with Derek Gould earlier on Friday. We were going to talk to him. I was asking him a question, and Bud Norris got injured. 
Bud Norris is currently sort of in the closer conversation with the Cardinals, but the Cardinals insist Luke Gregerson is going to be their guy going into the season. They've been linked to Greg Holland all winter long just because that's how people do these things. Cardinals have seemingly have an opening at closer and Holland is a free agent. But do you do you believe that the Cardinals are going to go into the season with Gregerson closing? And how do you think that this actually is going to end up? Because, you know, they also have Dominic Leone, who's come over from Toronto. They have a number of other options in the bullpen. And of course, when the designated closer is Luke Gregerson, maybe it doesn't take so much to surpass him for the role. You know, I I think that if if they wanted to go out and get somebody else, they already would have done so, whether it's Greg Holland, who's still available, or, you know, it's not like Addison Reed or Juan Nicasio or, you know, any of those guys signed for money that would have been prohibitive for the Cardinals to, to bring them in. I think that, you know, what what they've done is is what they're planning to do. And, you know, I, I don't think you can really blame them. I mean, they Luke Gregerson had a bad year. Maybe he'll have a better year. I mean, I, I think they'll have to sort of judge in the spring whether or not they, they want to put him in in the ninth inning. But, yeah, they, I mean, they added Dominic Leone. They added Bud Norris. Tyler Alliance is a guy who's pretty underrated. Brett Cecil had what most people view as a bad year just because he sort of bundled all of his bad starts when he was pitching an important role early on in the season. And he actually pitched pretty well if you look at things over the course of the season. And you know, so they've got an accumulation of arms. And then they've got some guys who, who could help uh, down in the minor leagues if, if they end up needing that. And so I, I think that they'll probably go into the season with, with Gregerson. But if Gregerson doesn't quite work out, they, they have other options, depending on who's pitching at the time. But I, I don't think that they're going to have a guy that where you look and say, well, this guy is the closer because he's clearly better than everybody else on the team. They're, they're going to have a guy who pitches in the ninth inning because, you know, Mike Matheny decides that this is the guy that's pitching in the ninth inning right now, not necessarily because he's, you know, a much better pitcher than everybody else. So you mentioned the Cardinals sort of lucking into Tommy Pham or getting a surprising season, at least from Tommy Pham. And you could probably say the same about Paul DeYoung, who kind of came out of nowhere, too, with a really good season and now seems to be penciled in as the everyday shortstop. So with both of those guys, how much regression should a reasonable person expect? Well, I mean, you know, if we were doing this last year, we would had the same conversation about Ledmus Diaz and yep. <laughs> two months into the season, Paul DeYoung had his job. So I, I think that, you know, Paul DeYoung probably will have a fairly long leash just because the, the Cardinals don't have a clear guy to back him up at, at this point. And so I think they're they're just going to hope for uh, at least an average bat and not the, the type of, of huge drop-off that they got. But I, I think that, you know, somewhere in, in the range of, of average is, is what you're hoping for, not necessarily the, you know, rookie of the year runner-up performance that they got last year. You know, he, like some of his peripheral stats indicated maybe he got a little bit lucky on balls in play and things like that. So I, I think that uh, if they can get average, I think that'd be acceptable. Uh, Tyreek Pham, it, it's hard to say, you know, in, injuries have been his problem. It, it's never been an issue of talent, you know, you know, I think his eye condition gets, you know, a decent amount of publicity, so don't need to get too much into that. But uh, he was a guy who actually made the major leagues, even though he was having problems, you know, seeing the ball in one year, I think it was 2016 uh, and briefly in the majors he hit like nine home runs but struck out 37 percent of the time or something like that it's it's a situation where if he is healthy and has that 
the the eye condition under control. I, I don't know that we're going to see that much of a drop off. I don't know that we're going to see you know a, a six to eight win player, but I, I think four to five is is pretty reasonable, assuming that he can play the whole season. So Tommy Pham last year had his whole breakout, and he was playing his age twenty nine season. And uh, behind him on the depth chart, there's another guy who just suddenly emerged in his age 28 season. This is, seems like a very Cardinals thing to do, but out of nowhere came Jose Martinez. Jose Martinez now is not assured of an everyday job. He's going to be, I guess, sort of a fourth outfielder, backup first baseman kind of situation. But last year in 307 plate appearances, which he only had 18 major league plate appearances before that, but Jose Martinez last year batted 309. He selected 518. He had a 135 WRC+. Plus. And all of a sudden, he looks like one of the more valuable hitters in the National League. Now, we haven't seen him in an everyday role, but what is your level of confidence in Jose Martinez? You can look at Tommy Pham and how often he swings and misses, and you can say, well, this guy's should have regress, but Jose Martinez has the exit velocity. He's got the launch angle. Last year, he had a better-than-average strikeout rate, a better-than-average walk rate. What is... What's the floor and what's the ceiling for this guy? But I think that the Cardinals obviously had a lot of confidence in him. Randall Grishik would have made a fine fourth outfielder getting, you know, three to four hundred, you know, plate appearances, playing all three positions. But given that they traded him, you know, obviously and Piscotti away, they want to find playing time for Martinez. And I think that, you know, he's one of the, you know, launch angle guys uh, in the minor leagues. He put up you know, high batting average education, but he just he never really hit for that much power, which is probably why he was still in the minor leagues at at 28 years old. And uh, he's a big guy. It's not like the power isn't there somewhere. It was a matter of of getting it out. And last year he was able to to use that and get the ball in the air and, you know, get the ball over the fence. And I think that he's not going to be good on on defense necessarily he's quicker than maybe his his frame looks but i don't think he's ever going to be plus out in in left or right field and that's going to limit his ceiling a little bit but I, I think that what he did last year isn't something that he he can't necessarily do there's too many double negatives there maybe but he, <laughs> uh, what what he did last year i think he can do again and what's the hope for Colton Wong at this point in his career it seems as if he was sort of jerked around as a young player and was sent down and brought back up and then just finally sort of settled in last year as an above average hitter is he just going to be left alone and and settle into a productive prime now do you think the the struggles and all the up and down stuff is over yeah, I think that, you know, he was he was a victim of, you know, Mike Matheny's what did you do last night in terms of getting you into the lineup tomorrow mm-hmm. um, mentality. But I think that, uh, you know, over time, the, the sort of persistence of Wong and, and the front office got himself a spot. And the fact that, you know, he was hitting eighth most of the season really helped his on base percentage. I don't know that you can expect, you know, 375 or 380 uh, like he, he did last year. But I, I think that he's a guy who's still trying to, to work work out whether or not you know he's a guy who's going to hit 15 home runs or if he's going to hit eight home runs and he worked it out pretty well last year but I think the fact that he's a guy that does have a little bit of power makes it so that 
his ceiling is maybe a, a little bit higher than than what he's shown, but I think he's sort of settling in as you're, you know, slightly above average second base. So as the Cardinals are in a sort of, let's call it competitive transition, maybe Yadier Molina is going into his age 35 season. I believe Adam Wainwright is going into his age 36 season, and Wainwright in particular is coming off another rough year for him he has just not come all the way back since before his injury in 2015 and Molina is coming off a, a fine season you know it was not his worst offensive season uh, at all but you know he was a below average hitter some cracks have started to develop so how long is the leash for both these guys it feels like we've been talking about Carson Kelly being the catcher of the future forever he's still only I think 23 years old so maybe that's my own perception problem but Molina is still there every day everyday role. Wainwright is still there. He's a member of the rotation, but how much longer do they have? Yeah, I think that the leash is a lot shorter for Wainwright than it is uh, Molina. You know, I realized that Kelly is, you know, probably ready to start in the major leagues right now, but with Wainwright, you know, it's you're sort of out there on your own if you're starting every fifth day. There's there's not a lot you can you can hide behind. You can put Molina in the, you know, seventh spot in the lineup and then talk about how he's doing a good job handling the staff. If Wainwright's giving up five runs every outing, there, there's not as much you can do. I, I think he he was throwing like 90 miles an hour in his first spring training start, which you know would be pretty encouraging considering he was he was a lot less than that in the, in the second half last year. In the first half last year, he was sort of uh, the victim of of some bad luck. I don't think he pitched as poorly as his. ERA would indicate, I think, as FIP said, he was, you know, a roughly average pitcher. I think that if he can throw around 90 miles an hour, he'll be a roughly average pitcher and he'll be, you know, the fourth or bit, fifth best pitcher on the Cardinals and it'll be fine and, and it's nothing to worry about. If all of a sudden he's back throwing 86, 87 miles an hour, you know, they'll have to make a change. You know, Molina just signed a three-year extension. I would assume that, you know, there's some sort of understanding that, over time that Kelly's going to get more more playing time. I mean, they're putting Kelly on the major league roster, so I would assume that, you know, they're not just going to have him sit up there and only play once every two weeks. I mean, you you would think that if you had a 23-year-old catcher who was who was ready to start, you would want him starting a decent amount of the time. But, you know, it's one of those things where there's sort of there's almost Kelly fatigue. It's like, you know, the backup quarterback situation. People are already looking to Andrew Kenzer and and saying, "Well, now Kelly's expendable because we already have this other backup to the backup." At catcher, but I, I think that they want Kelly to succeed Molina, and he'll get that opportunity. And they also want him to be ready if Molina gets injured, because he's older and catchers get hurt sometimes. And so I think that that's sort of going to be Kelly's role for at least the the next year. And I think they'll want to transition him to to the full time role within the next couple of seasons. You mentioned the Mike Matheny managing style and the lack of patience sometimes with younger players or the lack of willingness to take the long-term view, but he's still there. And a lot of the wave of Matheny-esque managerial hirings, guys who maybe were recently retired, didn't have a lot of prior managerial experience, a lot of those guys have already washed out. And Matheny is still there, still standing strong. And I think a lot of people look at him from afar and wonder how he's managed to hold on to his job because they never hear anything but negative comments about him from Cardinals fans, certainly about his in-game managing skills and even about his people skills too, which on paper at least should be his strength. So 
Is there something we can pinpoint that Matheny does really well, or is it purely a sense of loyalty and the relationships maybe he has with ownership or people in the front office? Uh, yeah, I think there's there's a lot to to the fact that the owners probably like Mike Matheny, and there is something to be said about it's probably harder to get rid of a guy who you know was put on a very successful team for for several years and the the team had a lot of success and you know a lot of people are going to correlate that to the the manager and the the fact that they've had two seasons in a row that that haven't been good probably you know put more of a target on Matheny and maybe exposed a lot of the things that people were angry about when the Cardinals were winning, but they sort of got brushed over. You know, last season, in the middle of the year, they fired third base coach and uh, reshuffled the the coaching situation uh, around them. That was sort of viewed as uh, a shot across the bow for Matheny to say, you know, hey, like, you're not you're not invincible here. And then, you know, this offseason, they brought back Jose Okendo, who is not really a, a guy in the same mold of Mike Matheny. He's more of, you know, a, an old school guy. He's he's not viewed as sort of like the not hands-on players coach like Matheny is. Jose Okendo's very much players on and demands a lot of the players. And so I, I don't think that Jose Okendo would have come back if he didn't feel like there was you know, uh, a sense of authority that he was going to be able to use during the season. And uh, they they also got rid of Derek Lilliquist in the offseason and brought in Mike Maddox, who the talk is that he's going to be able to have more power as far as, you know, changing pitchers and that sort of thing, which is another thing that Mike Matheny has not been strong at, at in the past. I think that there comes a point where having the owners like you isn't necessarily good enough and probably missing the playoffs three years in a row is is that situation. And it could be that situation if things start off poorly again this year like they did last year. I didn't think I had a Cardinals favorite fun fact, but I found one while you were answering a question. And going back to the year 2000, I'm just going to be annoying. I'm going to read off the Cardinals payroll rankings in all of baseball in order from 2000 on. This is going to be a lot of numbers. 9th, 11th, 10th, 7th, 8th, 7th, 10th, 11th, 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 12th, 11th, 9th, 11th, 11th, 12th, 8th, and 10th. I have not ranked them this year, but they're probably in the same range. So never higher than 7th, never lower than 12th. Cardinals have basically held steady in their investments. And one of the things that I think is most distinct about the way that the Cardinals operate is that they never really go all in. You know, they're always competitive, but they never push their chips in. They're always, if anything, sort of recycling prospects or like when they traded for Tyler O'Neill, they traded Marco Gonzalez to get O'Neill and they got another prospect with him. And the, the Cardinals are forever towing that line where they're trying to be good in the present, but also keeping an eye on the future. So maybe it's too difficult to answer because the Cardinals have won the World Series and they're seemingly always in the playoffs, say, for the last two years. But is there a real sense of frustration among the fan base that the Cardinals don't really go all in? Or is there, on the contrary, a sense of appreciation for how well they've sort of towed this line? Uh, I mean, I, I think it goes both ways. There there are a lot of fans that just say, well, you know, the, you know, they're, they've been making the playoffs, they've been winning games, you know, you have to place a certain amount of trust in the organization. And, you know, there's, there's a, a large segment of the fans saying, look, they've been drawing, you know, nearly three and a half million people every single year. They've got a new TV deal that's going into effect this season. And yet every time there's a free agent, you know, they, they 
show that they're interested and then you know they come in second or or you know whatever or they're not interested or that they pass up a guy and i think that it's it's one of those situations where if you look at each individual you know sort of free agent situation or trade or you know whatever you're going to say yes the cardinals made a reasonable move not to do that but if you look at it over the course of several years and it happens every single time then at some point you're going to say well why can't they just you know push things over you know to, in order to 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 make it happen and and it's it was unfortunate that they actually reached a deal with the Marlins for Giancarlo Stanton, and then obviously Stanton said, "No, I don't want to go there," because that that's sort of one of those situations where if you're mad at the owners, how mad can you actually be with the owners if they are trying to agree to take on the largest contract in baseball? So, I think that there is some frustration with the fact that the Cardinals' payroll has remained static over the last few years, if not. You know, right now it's it looks like it will have gone down, despite the fact that they seem to be making more money than ever. I think that there's also not a lot out there this year that that would have made a whole lot of difference for them. Maybe you Darvish, but the the fact is that if they were going to improve themselves a lot, they were going to need to make a trade because they have average players at you know basically every position. So they were going to need you know a Josh Donaldson or Manny Machado to become available. It certainly looks like Toronto wants to, you know, go for it essentially this season to to see where things are and and maybe you know if they're out of it at the trade deadline and the Cardinals make that move or maybe they, you know, make a big signing next year. But I, I think that there is definitely that sense of of frustration among among a lot of fans that the Cardinals aren't quite doing enough. And I think a lot of that has to do with how good the the, the Cubs are right now. Yeah, and if I can invoke Derek's BP annual essay one more time, and his essay is largely about how the Cardinals maybe have lost ground in certain ways. He writes, the game changed, edges they'd held for years softened, teams got smarter, Moselak said, teams got more money, teams openly mimicked how the Cardinals spied and groomed pitching talent, teams plucked from the club's brain trust, etc., etc. So he says that the Cardinals have gotten themselves in a bind because of their brand. They intend to contend always, which is just what Jeff and you were saying. An executive with the team described how its history and its fan base will not stomach an austere rebuild, and yet all around them, rivals are taking five steps back to slingshot one step ahead. So, not that the Cardinals should be tearing down and rebuilding right now, they're a good team, but if they do get to that point, do you think that they would be willing to take that step, or is their fan base and their brand going to continue to prevent them from doing that? Because you you could make the case that yes they draw a lot of fans and the fans don't want to see them do that and so they'll be loyal to the fans on the other hand you could say well the cubs had the same sort of thing where they could count on people showing up to the park even when the team was bad cardinals seem to have that too if they know they're going to draw if they know that people aren't going to forsake them if they lose for a few years then maybe the costs are lower than they would be for the typical team yeah, I think that it's it's hard to envision right now just because there's a lot of sort of fan angst over two seasons where they won 86 and 83 games. Right. And so it's like that's not actually that bad. You know, when you see yeah. going into a rebuild, usually they're at, you know, 70 wins or something. And then you have, say, well, look, we're bad right now. We're going to get worse for a little bit and then we'll get better. 
it's a lot harder to sell, you know, we're actually winning and now we're going to get bad. So it's, it's, it's tough to envision that scenario right now. It would, it would take several years down the line for the team to actually get bad in order for them to think about trying to sell a, a rebuild to the fans. I, I, I think it's possible to, to sell that, but I think that the Cardinals are far from that, that situation right now. And, and the way that they've built themselves, you know, if say they had a terrible season this year, I don't know that they could even have sort of that rebuild just because they have so many roughly average pieces. Like you, you could sell off, you know, a few pieces that might have some value, but you don't have anybody that's going to necessarily get that gigantic sort of white socks type deal that's going to accelerate a rebuild. And, and at the same time, even if you get rid of some of those guys, you've got one to two win players in the minor leagues that, that are going to keep your floor from, from falling too far down. And so mm-hmm. I, I think that it's possible to sell a rebuild at some point in time, but uh, that seems to be, you know, at least a, a few years away from that topic, even, even sort of making sense for, for the organization. All right, so let's stick with 2018 only for this final question, which is how many games will the Cardinals win in 2018? Uh, I will say 88. Okay. I think that's probably pretty close to whatever their their projection is. Mm-hmm. I think that's a pretty reasonable reasonable goal. Yep, prime wildcard range. All right. So you can read Craig even more often at Fangraphs now, and you can also follow him on Twitter at Craig J. Edwards. Thank you, Craig. Thank you. And with that, we are officially half of the way through our 2018 team preview series. 15 teams down, 15 to go, and we will get to the next one in just a moment. So we'll take a second to admire Ronald Acuna's 3-for-3 day with a homer on Friday, and we'll be back in just a second with Grant McCauley to talk about the Braves. Now I guess it's time for us to talk about the Atlanta Braves, a team that's finished below 500 for, what, four consecutive seasons? But it looks like, who knows, they could be almost on the verge of coming out of it. They're sort of in a race with the Phillies in that regard. And here we have Grant McCauley talk about the Braves and how they are looking for 2018. And honestly, I've been going back and forth on what I want to talk about, what I want to ask you about. There are overarching general questions, but really, let's just talk about Ronald Acuna because he's kind of the most exciting thing here. (laughs) How soon, maybe let's put it this way. Do you think that the Braves are one of those teams that would be willing to start a prospect on opening day or is Acuna ticketed for the minors? And part B, assuming he's ticketed for the minors, which I don't know, how long do you give it before he's up in the majors and, and starting in a corner? Well, I'll jump into part A. I do think he's going to go to the minors, but I don't think he's going to be there for very long. I look at this very similar to the Chris Bryant situation a handful of years ago where you just want to get under that threshold that you can assure yourself an extra year of team control. And with the way that the, you know, the economics of the game are important for a kind of a, a middle market or at least a middle market spending team like the Braves, I just feel like that's really where they're leaning right now. But I don't know. If you look at a spring training that he could put together that would really make it difficult, they brought Jason Hayward to the big leagues at 20 or so years old a few years ago. And 
you know, Ronald Acuna and Jason Hayward are very different players, but as far as where they're sitting in the, the, the upper echelon of prospects, they're not that dissimilar. But I, I don't know. I, I look at Acuna as a guy that, you know, he rocketed through the minor leagues last year. He was a player I was excited about this time a year ago and had no idea he was going to do what he did in 2017. But he's on everybody's radar. He's on the Braves' radar. He's pretty much the talk of camp, and he's been the talk of the, you know, of Braves' prospect circles for quite some time because he's so exciting. I really would imagine that if they're going to play the service time game, that he would probably be up sooner than later. And with the minor league team that he would be at in Triple A Gwinnett just being about, I don't know, 35 or 40 minutes away from SunTrust Park, it's not like they'll have to really uh, go through too much trouble for his travel to get him over to the uh, the new ballpark. And I would assume start in left field. That seems to be the way it's trending right now. How much will the straightness of his baseball cap brim determine his timeline? <laughs> is that is that story <laughs> overblown? Is that laying the groundwork for the team saying, oh, he needs more minor league seasoning? Has too much been made of that? Or I think a lot of people read that story about how the Braves are concerned about having him play the game the right way and have his hat on correctly as kind of a, a flashback to the Brian McCann Braves no fun days. But maybe there's too much being made of that story yeah there may be a little bit too much being made i kind of when i read the article that mark bowman posted that had that quote and it was more about you know andrew jones is a similar with a similar case coming up so young and you know having to kind of you know learn his way and assimilate the big league life as all young players do really but i thought it was more of a throwaway line mm-hmm. and i didn't really you know consider too much about it till i started seeing kind of the fan reaction to it on twitter like Oh, I'm glad the team's worried about, you know, which way somebody's hat's facing and all the important things. And why don't we go sign a free agent? You know, it kind of the, the oversimplification of, of a lot of, you know, fan problems. They want to see their team get better. As, as you mentioned, I mean, they've been under 500 for four straight years and it's not very exciting when you lose and, and lose 90 plus games year after year after year. So I don't think that Ronald Lacuna is worried about his hat. Moreover, this kind of, it's a dress code thing for young players when they come to big league camp for the first time. They want them to be focused on everything they can do on the field to succeed and kind of limit those distractions. Now, there may have been somebody in a high ivory tower with the Braves that saw an interview where he's sitting there with, without the jersey on, you know, with the hat kind of cocked sideways and looking a little bit too nonchalant. But, you know, the Braves are his employer. And just like we all have employers, if they decide we need to wear collared shirts every day, congratulations, we all get to wear collared shirts. And you know, that's the end of uh, of pullovers and, and graphic tees, I guess. I don't know. But, yeah, I, I think a lot's been made out of it. But I don't think it's a big deal. And, moreover, I don't think Ronald Lacuna really cares about it. And it, as you get up to the big league level, he'll be able to really express his individuality. We just need to see what this guy does when he finally steps the plate in the big leagues for the first time. Yeah, well, you mentioned Hayward, and obviously he came up, he was in his age 20 season when he debuted, and he was a star from day one. In fact, he was a better hitter that year than he ever has been since. So maybe that raises expectations for Acuna beyond any reasonable level, except for the fact that he got better with every level he climbed last year. And so you start to wonder whether he's just someone who somehow raises his game with each new level of competition. So is he someone who seems preternaturally polished and, you know, it's fair to expect him to just hit the ground running or should you forecast some sort of growing pains? I think there will be some growing pains because he swings and misses a lot more than, say, Jason Hayward did. But in today's game where, you know, you don't just look at strikeouts and think, oh, oh my gosh, this guy strikes out too much. There's nothing else he can do that'll overshadow these strikeouts. Teams and evaluators and and all of us as we consume the game, I mean, I think we've just accepted the fact that the evolution has said, 
all right, well, yeah, he strikes out a lot, but what other things is he doing and how is he going about doing it? And when you look at Ronald Acuna, he has these weird ways of, of getting into, I'd say like a, a 10 or so game stretch where he's really strikeout prone. Then all of a sudden he'll make that adjustment. If he, He's very intuitive for a hitter who's 19 years old, and a lot of it might be instinct, but a lot of it I think is just natural ability that he continues to cultivate and tap into. And that's where I start to get into that kind of that Andrew Jones parallel with him because at that age and with the kind of season he put up last year, this is really the most exciting prospect overall, no disrespect to Jason Hayward, but really the most exciting prospect the Braves have had since Andrew Jones about 20 years ago. So it's going to be interesting to see how he manages to work his way through all of the things that come with the challenges of showing his game and displaying his abilities at the big league level, playing under control. I know a lot of guys say that the game moves a lot quicker at the big league level. It just takes that time to click and adjust. This guy's going to strike out. You know, he's going to make errors on the base pass. He's a little bit raw when it comes to his overall base running ability, but the speed is, is obviously up top of the grade or top of the scale as far as scouts are concerned. If the guy does everything, but I don't think he's going to be able to do it all at once and necessarily, you know, catapult himself into superstardom in his first couple of months in the big leagues. I think it may just be a little bit more of a slow burn, but he doesn't seem overwhelmed. And I don't know if the language barrier might help a little bit with that. He doesn't have to hear and read and, and be in the echo chamber of, of folks that are heralding him as the, you know, the savior of a franchise, which is the last thing that Alex Anthopoulos or Brian Snicker or anybody else in that Braves front office wants. So I think he's equipped. I think that with it being a young team, I think that helps because he's got some guys like Ozzy Albies that he's played in the minor leagues with that he has a very close friendship with. I think that will help him as he it makes the climb into the major league level as well. As we've been talking about, Jason Hayward came up when he was in his age 20 season. Freddie Freeman, his age 20 season. Ronald Acuna looks like he'll be up in his age 20 season. And just last season, the player you just mentioned, Ozzy Albies, came up in his age 20 season. And much like, let's say, Dansby Swanson, he had a great debut. He, uh, he batted 244 times. He was an above-average hitter, played with a lot of electricity. You mentioned just now that one of the hopes, at least that you have, is that Acuna will be sort of shielded from being regarded as the savior of the franchise. But sort of some of the good news is that he doesn't necessarily have to be because Albies is already there. So what did you see from Albies last season, and how do you expect him to be able to build on that and you know, hopefully avoid the, the sophomore nightmare that Swanson just experienced over a full season? Yeah, you know, I think there's a lot to be learned from both of those guys you mentioned. Ozzy Albies obviously coming up having that two-month span where, you know, it took him a little bit to kind of get his feet under him, and, and then the base hit started coming. And then, you know, he starts to build that confidence. And Ozzy Albies is one of the most confident young players I have met and talked to in the 10 or 12 years I've been around the Braves anyway. And in most of the time that I've been covering or, or been around baseball, he has that ability it's very just a, a frenetic style that he plays with to where people really gravitate toward him. And I think that that's going to be beneficial to a guy like Swanson, who kind of was on an island by himself with a lot of expectations and the kind of thing that they want to keep off of Ron Lacuna. I think it's kind of been a learning experience in, in that regard. And having young players like that, you know, top prospects, number one overall picks, and, and guys that are kind of cutting their teeth at the same time, that's, I think, going to be beneficial overall. But when I look at Ozzy Albies, he's the guy that, might even be benefiting a little bit from everybody looking at Ronald Acuna because he can just slide in every day, do his thing, do his work. He worked out very hard over the offseason. And I asked him, I said, I know that the team has a goal of winning. You have a goal of staying healthy. Are there any other goals that you have for 2018? And he said, without hesitation, uh, 200 hits and 40 bags. That's what he wants to steal. That's what he wants to do this year. He wants to be an impact player. And Ozzy Albies, in, in, kind of in my research of his trajectory toward the big leagues, He's been on the young side. 
he has yet to face a pitcher who is younger than him at any level that he's played at. And then last year, he was the first player, I believe, from the year 1997, as far as being born that year, to get a base hit in the big league. So, yeah, there's a, there's a kind of a youth movement thing going on in Atlanta. And I think Ozzie Albies, Ronald Lacuna, and, and to a lesser extent, Dansby Swanson, are all kind of tied together in, in that way as the Braves try to kind of change the culture over and, and bring in this next wave of players that they hope will be around for a long time. And even though the Braves have graduated a lot of guys, Baseball America still has them back at number one in the organizational talent rankings for 2018, which is where they were last year as well. So obviously having the top prospect in baseball helps, but mm-hmm. what are the other strengths of their system and has the depth of the system been thinned at all by some of the promotions we've seen? It has a little bit, but the Braves have had this foundation as you look at their draft strategy the last few years to take pitchers pitchers and more pitchers and that's what they have this pipeline that they've set up that when they bring out that they have this saying or the statement that i've always taken with the way that they build their teams they call it the braves way now that's been put into a lot of other different you know machinations of of how you uh, go about maybe playing the game the right way or some other things but when i think of how the braves built and sustained their success for a long time a lot of it was homegrown and a lot of that was built around pitchers, specifically three Hall of Famers. One of them, I guess, came, came over from the Cubs. But they had a lot of good pitchers that came through their system, and they want to try that again. And so you look at guys like Mike Soroka, like Kyle Wright, who they just picked up in the draft last year, Colby Allard. I know Sean Newcomb kind of graduated last year. Luis Gohara is still rookie status, came over from the Mariners in the trade. Mike fulton is still a guy that – I mean, Mike fulton strangely enough, is within about six months – I think only six months younger than Julio Tehran. And Julio Tehran's been at the front of the Braves rotation for five years. So you've got a lot of guys as far as pitchers in their early to middle 20s that they're hoping to stack up. And that, I think, is the depth and the strength of the Braves farm system uh, when you bring those guys through. I mean, Max Fried is another one that doesn't get mentioned, I think, enough. And then there are some uh, younger players position-wise that should be on the radar for top 100 lists and for folks that are excited about the future of the Braves, including Austin Riley, the third base prospect they have. And Christian Pache, who's a center fielder that's getting really high marks from a lot of people that see him play. I think there's power in that bat. It hasn't shown up yet. He hasn't had a home run yet in two years. But I really think he's going to be an exciting player. But throw all that all in there with the Ronald Acunas and Ozzie Albies and Dansby Swansons. And it's easy to see why a lot of folks like the young players they see in Atlanta. And I think they're going to go right back into the draft and continue to go to that well, get pitchers and find the players that they need to you know, build the most well-rounded farm system they have because – as I'm sure you guys know with Alex Anthopoulos, he's not afraid to make a deal or two as far as trades are concerned. And some of these guys they're hoping are going to impact the club from being homegrown. And some of them are going to bring in pieces they need from other teams to really round out this 25-man roster and get the Braves back to winning. In one sense, it's been a pretty quiet offseason for the Braves. They, at least last I checked, they, they hadn't signed a major league free agent or they had only signed, I don't know. I don't remember exactly what the factoid was, but they haven't done much. They made that trade with the Dodgers just to move some don't money around. Don't forget Chris but Stewart. Of course, <laughs> I did forget Chris Stewart <laughs> again. Okay. Forget him every year. But of course, in another sense, it was a very loud offseason for the Braves with the organizational disruption, the upheaval. I don't need to go back into detail. We've talked about this at length, but there's a there's basically a brand new front office and the team was disciplined for some international improprieties, let's say. So 
now that some time has passed, and of course the discipline is still there, but how how do you perceive the disruption to the organization and the effect that you think this is going to have on their moving forward? Because now you can start to see that core coming together. As you mentioned, a lot of the young pitchers who are coming up right behind the position players. But you know, how much has the course been altered by the events of this past offseason? Yeah, it's a weird thing in sports or maybe even in life where sometimes the things that you think you wanted or needed, they don't work out and you're forced to go to a, a different plan or take a different course. And the Braves obviously did not want to get into the situation they were in from an overall organizational standpoint. It's a black eye on the organization. I'm not going to sit here and say that, hey, the Braves are the only team that was coloring outside the lines in the international market. But they were a team that got caught, and they got disciplined, and Major League Baseball made an example out of them, and that is going to sting from a public relations standpoint and from the infrastructure of their front office. But they moved so quickly and made the sweeping kind of change to bring in a guy that is very highly regarded, and I think a, a good mind for baseball in Alex Anthopoulos, a guy that had GM experience, and they were able to go get the kind of leader, I think, that is exactly what they needed in the situation. So... From a long-term sense, I, I don't know. The international stuff will obviously hurt because you, you find great young players there year after year, and you want to be in that market. You want to be playing in that market and having the opportunity to get those players. But they are smart when it comes to other ways of drafting players and cultivating players. And obviously, they can make trades and do some different things. So long-term, I, I think it affected some of the individuals more than it affected the organization overall because it changed the trajectory of all those young players. They're out there looking for new teams, and most of them signed. And then obviously, John Coppolella was banned for life. And that's you don't hear that very often when it comes to baseball. People getting thrown out of the game you know, for in perpetuity. So that's another thing that the Braves, I think, are just looking to put behind them and looking to focus on the here and now with what they do have as far as young talent and where Alex Anthopoulos can take them. And I think that they tapped the right kind of leader, and we'll see what he's able to do with a very rich farm system that he inherits and some pretty good younger major league players as well. It's hard to say for sure, but would you speculate that the way that that organizational turnover happened and happened when it did affected the course of the offseason? Do you think that that contributed to the lack of moves or not really? Would this have probably been what the Braves have done anyway? And is there still turnover going on? Because, you know, we read about the president and the GM and some of the top front office people. But of course, when a new regime comes in, Often there's really a top-down overhaul where you're hiring new scouts, you're hiring new minor league personnel. It's it's really a wider-ranging transition than it appears to be, and that isn't something you can always do overnight. No, it's, it's hard to quantify all those changes at least at once, and, and I don't really think that they are, to your point, really happening You know, all at one time. You had to start at the top, obviously, and, and tap somebody to start leading, but I've had the opportunity to talk to Alex a few times, and really the thing that stood out to me was that he wanted to take the opportunity to get to know what he had in-house, both from a player perspective, personnel, and also what he had in the infrastructure of the front office that was not affected by Major League Baseball's discipline and you know needing to, to go away, as it were. And I, I think that that did affect the offseason because he didn't want to come into a job and say, all right, well, I want to turn over the front office and I want to make you know 12 to 15 moves with a team having not really gotten into looking at what the minor league, what the farm system is offering us, what assets do we have, what do we want to do, where do we want to go, I think he wanted to have that feeling out process. And I think that just judging from his past with the Blue Jays, once he starts to get comfortable, I think the wheeling and dealing will start when it comes to making trades. All of us are eagerly awaiting seeing what that next year's free agent class offers because you have – 
you know, the superstar players hitting the market and just a wealth of other great players that are going to be out there free agency wise. So it it definitely affected the tone of the off season. I think it neutralized any kind of big sweeping move that you would have made if you were the old regime. And as they get settled into this new ballpark and get what they hope will be added revenue streams. And, and thus far the early returns seem to be pointing that way. As far as uh, projections are concerned, they'll have a little bit more money to spend and be able to raise that payroll once you get outside of 2018. So a lot of things seem to be much closer than they were four years ago. I don't know that it makes fans feel a lot better about it, but it is kind of trending in the right direction. And you get the added bonus of all these young players you've been hearing about for two, three, four years. They're starting to graduate to the big league. So it seems like, pardon the pun, all roads are kind of leading to Atlanta for a lot of different things that are going on with trying to get this big league club back on track. You talk about the the revenue streams coming from the new ballpark, and of course, the Braves just opened SunTrust Park last season, last April. They've played a full season of it, obviously. Maybe not, obviously. I haven't been down to Georgia. I haven't checked out the ballpark myself, but I was curious what your impressions have been of the ballpark, not just the way that it's played. It seems like it's been fairly neutral, but there's been speculation it could be hitter-friendly. I don't know. I'm going to leave that to you, but also just what is the feel of the place? You've got a lot of the more contemporary stadiums that are starting to feel a little bit smaller, a little more intimate. And how does SunTrust match up? I would say SunTrust definitely falls into that more intimate feel. That's what they wanted to go for because when they had Turner Field, which was originally, it's a retrofitted Olympic stadium from 1996, the seats just seemed to just expand back and just keep going. And you always felt if you're up higher, further away and further away from the action, and I think that, you know, as you look at capacity of these ballparks, I don't know that you really need a 53,000-person stadium in today's way with the way that we consume baseball and on all sports in so many different platforms. It's not necessarily about making sure we have a sellout so that we can have the revenue that we need every year. It comes in other streams. And that's what they're hoping that this entire development is going to offer because this, the battery that's adjacent to this, they call it the mixed-use development, that was a brainchild, I think, of John Sherholtz and some of the other you know, Braves executives that wanted to create an atmosphere around the ballpark that had fans want to come early and stay late. And even in the offseason, there'd be things going on. There'd be concerts, there'd be restaurants, there'd be shopping, there'd be all that stuff that Turner Field really didn't offer. Turner Field was right off of a, a gigantic basic interchange where a lot of the interstates came together, south of town, south of the capital, no restaurants around, just parking lots and you know some uh, a, a little bit of a, a college development for Georgia State but really not much of anything. And they were able to change that around. And obviously, if you put all that together, new ballpark and mixed-use development, they want to turn that into a moneymaker. And that will hopefully lead to them spending some more money on the on-field product because I think still the best promotion that you can run the team is winning because fans seem to like that. And they seem to come out in droves and spend their money on all that merchandise and all that other good stuff. Yeah, and the Braves increased their attendance by about half a million fans last year. So what about all the concerns about traffic and transportation? Obviously, there were a lot of traffic issues early in the season and fears that things wouldn't be ready in time for opening day. Did those problems get ironed out as the season went on, or are they still present to a certain extent? I think that they got ironed out. I mean, I live north of the of, of the stadium. I live up in north of in Cobb County where the stadium is, but it's kind of right on that line of you know going outside the perimeter, as we say here in Atlanta, where it's right on 285. There's still active construction going on, but I don't think it was nearly as bad as people were expecting. And I don't think the parking went as poorly because everybody was used to well, at Turner Field, you just park right across the street here and walk over. And in Atlanta, if you guys haven't had the joy of coming here, we don't use public transportation well. 
everybody has to drive and we all have to drive ourselves by ourselves, I guess, so that we can leave wherever we're going early. So there's too many cars on the road and it, the rush hour and just the overall general population uh, on the interstate can be a bit of a trouble uh, or a bit of a problem and create trouble for people coming from south of town. But if you plan properly, uh, anywhere you go in Atlanta, you're going to run into traffic. I don't think it was the apocalypse that people were predicting that it would be, but I didn't have nearly any traffic problems that I had trying to get to Turner Field living north of town. So I guess they just flipped it around, and they looked at their fan base as they went out and did their research for this whole thing, and they showed like hot zones of where people were buying Braves tickets, and they were tracking it over the years, and there was just a huge hotbed more so north of town than south of town. So basically, I think in a lot of ways, and this may be oversimplifying it, but they picked up their product and they moved it closer to what they felt like would be the fan base that would be most likely to come out and, and really attend games if they were closer to the product. And, you know, there's something to be said for that. Most, if not any brick-and-mortar business, would probably try to do that. And I think that's just what the Braves did. I feel kind of dumb doing this because I'm asking you a question about a reliever before we ever get to Freddie Freeman, you know, the best player on the team. But we're doing this anyway. Last year, there was a guy named A.J. Minter. A lot of people don't know who A.J. Minter is, but he pitched in uh, single A, high A, double A, triple A, then the majors. He, uh, he threw 15 innings in the majors, and over those 15 innings, he uh, allowed two walks, and he had 26 strikeouts. What is A.J. Minter? A.J. Minter is probably the most exciting relief prospect the Braves have had since Craig Kimbrell. And I know that's a big name to throw out there, and I hate dropping player comps on him. And, and clearly, one's left-handed and A.J. Minter, and one's right-handed and Craig Kimbrell. One may end up being one of the greatest closers in the history of the game, and the other is, you know, like you said, he's thrown 15 innings. But <laughs> A.J. was the guy that they took in a relatively early round pick in 2015 out of Texas A&M. I think he was a third-round pick, but he was coming off of Tommy John surgery. So they knew he wasn't going to pitch much, if, if at all, that first year. And they have taken him slowly through his minor league progressions the last couple of years because the arm injury, and then you think he's had a couple of uh, core issues and a, a groin injury, I think, last year might have cost him about six weeks. But when healthy, this is a guy with an upper 90s fastball and probably the most devastating slider of anybody in the Braves system. And that's what led to these eye-popping numbers you see. I mean, 26 strikeouts. I don't think he walked a guy until his final appearance in the big leagues uh, this past year. And he's a guy that as you kind of delve more into the numbers, you see a nice tidy three ERA and that looks great, but his fielding independent pitching was under one. I mean, he's a guy that he grew more and more confident once he got to the big league level. And I've talked to AJ quite a bit the last three years, because when you're rehabbing, you got a lot of time to talk. And he basically said, you know, if, and when I get healthy, I feel like, you know, it's going to be there and I'm going to be able to make an impact Whatever the role is, whatever they have me do, I'm just itching to get back out there. So I think mentality-wise, he's got what it takes between the lines on the mound. And as far as the overall dynamic of what they're trying to build, they the Braves are very particular about you know, the kind of the character of the guys as they try to build this chemistry. And Mentor's just another guy that has bought into how the Braves want to build and, and shape these minor league pitchers. And they're very much kind of a, a, a close-knit group. It's interesting to see. But A.J. Minter, he stands out. When you see him on the mound, he's not the biggest guy out there. But that slider is devastating, and that fastball gets on you in a hurry. And I'm going to ask a catcher question before we get to Freddie Freeman. If you believe baseball prospectuses <laughs> wins above replacement player stat, which, of course, includes framing and other aspects of catcher defense, there was no more productive position in all of baseball than Braves catcher last year because both Tyler Flowers and Kurt Suzuki were really good. Now, Flowers has been good before. He sort of took it up a notch both offensively and defensively last year. Kurt Suzuki was also really good and 
Harmon did not really have a track record of hitting anywhere near as well as he hit. So on the one hand, it's good in that both of those guys were very productive last year and they're both back. On the other hand, maybe you would forecast some regression coming from them. But how much do the Braves believe in the 2017 versions of Flowers and Suzuki? I think they're as cautiously optimistic as you can be in that they they like the guys who they are and the players that they have shown that they can be as of last year. I mean, Tyler Flowers' numbers from Chicago to Atlanta are a night and day difference. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's across the, the slash line, I think he's up about 50 points in each column. And he obviously has the value that he brings with being able to, you know, frame pitches better than pretty much anybody from any metric I've found in Major League Baseball. Yep. And it doesn't seem to be particularly close the last couple of years. No. Uh, Kurt Suzuki was just a guy that I think they just wanted to have somebody else in tandem that had experience and, and had the kind of, you know, the overall attitude and aptitude to handle a young pitching staff. And, and Kurt did that very well last year. And whether it's the baseball or, or, or the smaller parks or whatever, you know, like you said, I mean, you look at wins above replacement on the Braves, there was no more valuable position on the team, including Freddie Freeman, which is kind of crazy to look at. And these are two guys that are going to be counted on again to come in and bring at least consistent offensive production along with what they do behind the plate. Because if I were kind of looking through the Braves starting nine right now, and you've got Ender Inciarte and Ozzy Albies at the top, probably in that order, Freddie Freeman batting third, in that fourth spot, you'd kind of like to have some right-handed power. And right now, the Braves don't have a lot of that except for Tyler Flowers and Kurt Suzuki. So these guys may be not only platooning behind the plate where they don't mind seeding a little bit of time to the other because it keeps both of them healthy, but also they may be looked upon as guys who need to drive and runs for the Braves and kind of power the middle of that order, which is a pretty big responsibility. So it'll be interesting to see if there is regression. And if so, how do the Braves deal with that? And obviously, you know, what do Flowers and Suzuki have to offer on one year remaining on their deal? And, you know, clearly they're going to want to continue playing beyond 2018. And it's kind of a big year for them. One of the most fun things of following baseball is being critical of its best players. And last year, Freddie Freeman, he did have a, a wrist injury that knocked him out for some time. But when you look at his overall numbers, he wound up with a career low strikeout rate. He had a uh, career best offensive season, at least by WRC+. Plus. He tied for his best every year. He didn't hit a single pop-up. And he is somewhat amazingly still only 28 years old feels like he should be at least i don't know 31 by now but he's sure not uh so in your estimation freeman clearly is one of the more underrated hitters around he just hasn't gotten the attention that he probably deserves but is there anything in particular that you think freddie freeman could or will stand to do better or is this is this the complete product a guy who would be you know an mvp candidate if he played on a better team I'll be honest with you. I, I didn't forecast this, you know, three, four years ago, even when he was coming up and putting up, you know, a, a solid 290 season and slugging about 500 and hitting his 20 homers and getting his 40 doubles and 100 RBI. And he's a solid defender, but he found the next level in the second half of 2016 that I wasn't really sure was there. And he went on an absolute tear that only ended when he was hitting the wrist and suffered that injury and was out for 45 games. But I, I think this is, this is the guy at this point. I mean, he has a great approach to hitting in terms of uh, he has a plan. He's a guy that, like you said, the strikeouts went down a little bit last year, but the power and the production has seemingly gone up year after year for at least the last three or if not four years. But the only thing that really holds him back seems to be wrist injuries. As far as getting to that MVP you know, consideration, obviously the team he plays on would help out quite a bit in that regard. But this is a guy that just continues to get better. The Braves have him under contract through 2021, which is his age 31 season. 
for a very affordable rate of about $21 million per year, which is tremendous. If you look at maybe what the Padres just paid Eric Hosmer, I'd rather be paying Freddie Freeman $21 million a year. So, and he's three years younger. It's very interesting to see uh, what Freddie Freeman has become and if there is anything left, you know, as far as new heights to reach. Because if, when we start to look at all the best first basemen in baseball, save Joey Votto, I don't know. Freddie Freeman has a pretty good case for, for being the best at that position, at least in my estimation. And, and maybe I'm a little biased from watching him play every day. And what sort of moves would you expect the Braves to make in season this year if, for instance, they manage to keep Brandon McCarthy and Scott Kazmir healthy for the first half of the season? Will they be looking to move those guys if Julio Tehran bounces back? He's been on the block before. Would he still be a trade candidate or is he someone that they'd now like to try to keep around? Is there plan heading into next winter, say, to really ramp up the spending with an eye toward 2019? I guess, where do they stand on the buying-selling spectrum? It feels like everybody's kind of waiting on that 2019 free agent class, so to say that the Braves are not would probably be selling them short. But Julio's under control for a couple of more years, and he has another option, I think, for 2021. And if he is back to his all-star form of 2016, the Braves have a very controllable, I won't call him an ace, I won't call him a number one, but a, a guy that could pitch in the front of a rotation and has for the last few years. But if they could get somebody else that could really be that true number one, I think that would take a little bit of pressure off of him. But as far as the veterans that they brought in this year, considering how many young pitchers, you know, Mike Soroka in particular, and Colby Allard and Kyle Wright, that will all probably be pitching in AAA at some point this year, the three of them. Those are guys that could be knocking on the door in the second half. So if you have a Casimir or more specifically a Brandon McCarthy, those would be moves I would expect could, could be made there. Will Anthopoulos jump out and try to make a trade that would jumpstart his 2018 offseason? I, I don't know. He might. Done in the past. But there are specific things the Braves really could use to, to round out their team and their lineup. And, and the ones that really stare at you are third base, where they have what looks like a platoon right now between a couple of young players. And then Nick Markakis will be, he's in the final year of his contract. If Ron Lacuna goes into right field, you still need another corner outfielder. So there's, those are the two spots I really expect them to look. I think they like developing their own relievers from a cost control standpoint and maybe hitting on some guys that other teams give up on, kind of some reclamation projects here and there. But if they could get another good starter, right, top of the rotation style starter, and address third base and, and right or left field and bring some more power in that lineup and do it during the season, I think they'd strongly consider it, especially if they're hanging around within four or five games of a wild card in late July. At that point, I think you kind of owe it to yourself as a team, especially if you want to let people know, hey, we're interested in competing as opposed to just you know being in this, uh, this vacuum of letting things slide and kind of getting into that tanking area that you know, is, is really a new hot button topic for baseball. Maybe making a move like that would help jumpstart the Braves for 2019. I don't think it would hurt. All right. Well, before we look ahead to 2019, we'll end with the question about 2018. As we end all of these segments, we need to force you to give us a win total prediction. So how many wins will the 2018 Braves end up with? All right. I'm going to break out my wet blanket and toss a 75 win prediction on the Braves. And not because I think that they can't be better than that, but the last few years, and especially last year, even when they, they clawed their way up to 500, there is a part of the summer or part of the season where things just kind of go wrong. And I haven't seen yet this team really be able to answer that call. And maybe that's some of the makeup of the team, some uh, attrition with the roster, some changeover, some injuries, some trades. But I really feel like 75 wins is a pretty good marker to put on them. It would get them under the 90 loss plateau, which I'm sure they'd like to do. 
But if some things go right, you know, this is a club that could flirt with 500, maybe a little bit better. And the difference in a 75 win team and an 81 win team, obviously, is one win per month. So I certainly think they're capable of that, but I feel pretty comfortable putting that 75 on them. Um, obviously, for them, I hope they do better. Uh, for me, selfishly, watching baseball games, it's, it's fun to watch teams when they win. But that's probably where I see them this year. But I'd love to be surprised and or proven wrong. Do you keep a wet blanket handy or do you just wet the blanket for the occasion? <laughs> well, you don't want it to, to sit too long and mold. So I, I think yeah. you just get a new blanket for each occasion. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's, that's careful blanket handling techniques. There you go. From Blankets R Us. <laughs> All right. Well, you can listen to Grant and hopefully have him not bring down your mood with his wet blanketness on <laughs> 92.9. You can also hear him hosting the Around the Big Leagues podcast and you can find him on Twitter at his name, Grant McCauley. Grant, thank you very much. Thanks, guys. I really enjoyed it. And uh, anytime you guys want to chat about the Braves, we'll be more than happy to do it. And with that, we are more than halfway through the 2018 Team Preview Series. You can help keep us going. Support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who have recently pledged their support include Jesse Coomer, Mark Arduini, Albert Liu, Nick Gettle, and Jonathan Fabry. Thanks to all of you. On the show page, I am linking to an article from the Hardball Times this week published by Andrew Dominiani. It is about a discussion that Jeff and I had back in episode 1041, where we entered a listener email about whether it can possibly be faster to bounce a throw for an infielder than to complete the throw on the fly. Andrew presented on this topic at Sabre Seminar last year, so Jeff and I briefly talked about it then, but his findings and lots of physics and graphs are now at the Hardball Times, so I will link to that if if you want to find out more about it, you can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. Now with more than 7,400 members, the discussion never stops. I had someone from a team who posted a job listing in there tell me just yesterday, there may be no better place to find interested and talented folks who want to work in baseball. You can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcast at fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. Remember to head to banishtothepen.com, the site started by Effectively Wild listeners. They are doing written previews of each of the teams that we are previewing on the podcast, so you can go there right now and find links to their Cardinals and Braves previews. Also, please help us out with the Effectively Wild wiki, which is proceeding apace. People are filling in information about past episodes, helping us build a database of listener email questions. Click on the Effectively Wild wiki link in the show page. That will take you to the site where you'll find instructions for how you can contribute. We hope you have a wonderful weekend or rest of your weekend. Enjoy those glorious gifts of Shohei Otani's slider and we'll be back early next week with the next installment in our team preview series featuring the Angels and the Phillies. Talk to you then. She said